Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank podcast. We love God, love people, and love our city. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org. Greetings, church. It's so great to be with you today. We are in week four of the sermon series, The Gospel in Full Color, and I'm going to be speaking on freedom from racism. I'm a white woman, you may have noticed. And when Pastor Simon asked me to speak on freedom from racism, my first thought was, I'm never going to know enough about this topic to be able to speak on it. My second thought was, as a white woman, I've benefited from the system of racism my whole life through white privilege. And as a minister of the gospel, I'm going to do everything that I can to break down these systems because it has no place in the kingdom of God and it is in direct opposition to the gospel. My third thought came a little bit later and Dax in his song, Black Lives Matter, summarizes it so well. And he says, racism is a curse. Don't wait for anyone else to act. You go first. Pastor Quinton in session two gave an analogy of a plane when he spoke on race and reconciliation, easier said than done. And he said, you know, imagine the plane. Have you got the plane in your mind? He said, buckle up and basically don't jump out of the plane until we land. I want you to think of that plane today. Um, and I want you to, we're going to use that same analogy. So have you got that plane in your mind's eye? So we're in the plane, we're flying the plane. This plane is a little bit different in that we are building the plane as we're flying. We're going to go to four destinations today. A white world, the early church world, a colorful world, and a free world. And we're going to start off this journey with an in-flight movie by the Sejo Liebisi. She put on her Instagram social media feed around about the time of the George Floyd's death and she wrote a lament and I would like us to listen to this today. What is it about my color that gets under your skin? I can't breathe, I can't breathe, you suffocated me. Oh, can't you feel my neck under your knee? You're killing me. What is it about my color that gets under your skin? With a voice that shouted, screaming, preaching to the choir. We're pleading with the ones who can make a difference, so don't you stay quiet. What is it about my color that gets under your skin? George Floyd's death put a global spotlight on the sickness of bias and discrimination and prejudice and the impact of racism in society, the impact of systemic racism in society. Systemic racism is racism that's really in the system, the policies, procedures, in boardrooms, you know, in media. It filters into our worldview and it perpetuates the systems of discrimination and racism in our society. When I read my Bible, I am challenged and offended the Bible has the power and God's word has the power to set us free for sure. But often on the way to freedom, we 
need to go through challenge and we need to pass offense to get on the road to freedom, yeah? And so the Bible offends my sense of self-preservation. When Jesus says in Matthew, if you want life, you need to lose your life for my own sake. It offends my sense of thinking and challenges my thinking. You know, when, when God says, do you want to be great in the kingdom? I want to be great in the kingdom. Who wants to be great in the kingdom? We all want to be great in the kingdom, right? But in order to be great in the kingdom, Jesus says, awesome, now serve and give your life away and serve some more and give your life away. So our first journey is a white world. So growing up in a broken home, in a fairly dysfunctional home, I struggled with a lot of things, struggled with loneliness, struggled with identity, you know, sense of belonging, uh, rejection, shame, shame that I didn't grow up in the proverbial right side of the railway track. Um, I was also pretty intense on never marrying because I'd looked at marriages and all the marriages that I'd seen, there was basically, it was dysfunctional, it was unhappy, um, and there was abuse in those marriages. So at the age of 17, I wouldn't say that I felt like the, you know, the world was my oyster. Life was going to be awesome. Um, I, was, I had a lot of challenges. I had a lot of issues, a lot of issues with identity. But being a white South African really gave me an opportunity to change my story. And even though I struggled with identity issues, this was within a world of white identity. Jamie K. Kahn, author and researcher, writes about the importance of identity because of its political consequences. He writes, when one calls oneself colored white black Indian, you do not only refer to the color of your skin or the texture of your hair, but you're talking about the way in which a political system has positioned you, which has material and economic consequences for your life. It has consequences for the life chances that you have to make a dignified life for yourself. And so until those categorizations no longer have life consequences, identity is not something that can be swept under the rug. This is about having the opportunity to experience a life that is free from suffering and strife based on the color of your skin. And this is a consequence of how identities are formed. So even though I was struggling with identity. It was very much within a white, privileged world. Privilege, the word privileged, it elicits a lot of discomfort in white people and people with means. But Norma Young, in her book, We Need More Tables, speaks the, about the importance of recognizing privilege, no matter what color our skin is. So as we recognize, as we recognize privilege, we can recognize the opportunities that it can create to open doors for others. She speaks about building tables for other people to come and sit at. She speaks about building more tables for other people to come and sit at so that we can open doors for people. She encourages us to understand that hard work is not linear because we know many people in this country who work extremely hard but cannot afford, for example, medical aid or cannot afford to send their kids to school and cannot afford school kids. Why is this so important? Recognizing that privilege exists is important because it helps us see the impact of systemic racism in our society. And if we cannot see, you know, if we cannot see, how can we be the change? How can we bring the change? 
How can we bring the transformation of lives, communities, and societies if we cannot see? Professor Harvey Mansfield writes in the Wall Street Journal and describes a society that is so little racist or biased or prejudiced that no one can respectably advocate racism or prejudice. Yet so much racism that every part of it is soaked with racism or bias or prejudice, leaving us with the paradox of a racist society without racists or prejudice. I mean, those are interesting thoughts, right? So, for example, when a person of color moves into a white neighborhood, why do white people get nervous? Why do white people leave that neighborhood? When, for example, a person of color becomes a senior pastor, why do white people get nervous? Why do white people leave that church? Why do we have, for example, the Tresemme ad, the disaster of that ad, still happening in 2020? We have to ask ourselves those questions. Why? Why when bandage companies um, brand their plasters and they say skin color and the skin color looks like my skin color? We need to ask ourselves those questions. Why? Why do we as people of color, black people, white people, Indian people, colored people choose to fill our lives and fill our worlds with people that look exactly like us and nobody else. Friends, guilt and shame is disabling. I know that more than anybody. Um, but repentance and forgiveness is empowering and leads to transformation and change. God is in the business of transforming lives. God is in the business of bringing freedom. The gospel wants to impact every single area of our lives, not just when we attend church in a church building, right? Every single aspect. He wants to go deep, deep down. The word of God reaches deep into the heart and he brings healing and he brings life and he brings change. Destination two, the early church world. We're going to take a brief look at the early church world and really Look at humanity. What was happening in the early church through the lens of culture, through the lens of people coming from different nations, different cultures, and kind of figuring life out together. They were on the plane, but they were certainly building and fixing that plane while, while they were on the journey. We're going to look at its culture, its hierarchy, prejudice, the impact of systemic racism. And if you want to um, find more out about that, Pastor Lareko gives an excellent session on just looking at church history and the impact of systemic racism in our society. So I want us to just kind of look at it through the lens of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was an interesting man. A third of the New Testament is either about Paul or written by Paul. He was known as one of the greatest influences of church history for 2,000 years. And he was a man that was a Jewish man that was born in Tarsus. He went to the University of Tarsus. It was in the Mediterranean. It was the third most famous university after Alexandria and after Athens. And um, his father had been made a Roman citizen. And because of this, Paul was also a Roman citizen. So if you can imagine, just think about which country you think has the greatest passport in the world and gives you the greatest access. This is what, Roma, this is what uh, the Roman citizenship gave you and this is what Paul had. We can certainly see that Paul was a man of great privilege. 
He was proud to be Jewish, fighting for the purity of the Jewish faith. And he believed that Christians uh, was the greatest enemy to the Jewish faith, Judaism. So we're going to pick up Paul's life. Paul was originally known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and he went through a name change and then became the great apostle Paul. We're going to pick up Paul's life from Acts 9 and read from verse 1 to 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. We see that Paul is a seriously passionate man. So that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly light from heaven shone around and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was struck blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate or drank. And here we see a phenomenal transformation, an encounter with Jesus. Saul is going in one direction and he has an encounter with the Lord and it changes the trajectory of his life forever. He goes on to becoming uh, a phenomenal missionary to the Gentiles. Saul's conversion is dramatic. He realizes that Jesus is the only Messiah. And we're going to carry on with that story a little later. There's another man around about the same time. His name is Ananias. He's at home. Mr. and Mrs. Christian, Mr. and Mrs. Disciple, living a comfortable life. And he has an encounter with God. God speaks to Ananias and says, Ananias, there's this guy called Saul of Tarsus. I'm sure Ananias was saying, yeah, I know who Saul of Tarsus is. He's the guy that's breathing murder and threats against, well, people just like me. But, says, but God says, I want you to go to, to, to Paul, Saul, now Paul. I want you to go to him and I want you to pray for him that he would receive sight. And Ananias has a choice to make right there and then. Does he go or does he stay in his nice, comfortable home? The, the, the gospel will offend our senses of comfort, right? Anyway, Ananias makes a decision. He's going to cross the chicken line and he's going to go. And he prays for Paul. Uh, Paul gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. He receives sight and he goes, he goes on with life. So who are you in the story? Are you still Saul breathing hatred and prejudice and bias? in society or maybe social media? Are you, Paul, having had an encounter with God, being transformed, and now God is using you to bring unity and to bring life and to bring peace and to bring justice in society, which we see later in Paul's life, God used him mightily to, to do exactly that. Or are you Ananias, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, facing a decision to obey God's word to get uncomfortable, to cross the chicken line, or just to stay in, in your comfort zone. We pick up Paul's life in Galatians 2 with the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was a diverse church. There were Africans and Greeks and Romans, a, a pretty cool church, a multicultural church, just, just like our church. And we pick up the story in Galatians 2. Paul is there um, and... 
Let's read it. But when Cephas, who was Peter, one of the disciples, came to Antioch, I, who was Paul, opposed him to his face. Passionate Paul coming out. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James was a pastor in Jerusalem. So the men that came from James were Jewish Christians. So you had Jewish Christians and you had Gentiles Christians. Who were the Jewish, who were the Gentile Christians? Basically, if you weren't Jewish, you were a Gentile. So before certain men came from James, James was the pastor in Jerusalem. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, the Jewish Christians came to the Gentile Christians. He drew back and he separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those that belonged to the circumcision group, the Jewish Christians who had been circumcised. A little bit of a backstory. Circumcision was a big deal if you were Jewish. And in Acts, the leaders of the church met and decided they were kind of grappling with, do you need to be circumcised if you're Gentiles? Do you you need to be circumcised to be a Christian? James stands up and the the matter is settled. You don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. This is a custom. It's a practice. It's not doctrine. It's not gospel. So that's a little bit of a backstory. Another little bit of backstory is God has an encounter with Peter one day because Peter is now mixing with the Gentiles. He's eating with the Gentiles, hanging with the Gentiles. Um, and God has an encounter with him about culture and about because he doesn't want to eat certain things because things are unclean. And so, so God has kind of an encounter with Peter um, and Peter needs to make that decision of crossing the chicken line and, and you know, interacting with different cultures in specific ways. So those are a little bit backstories that are, that is happening here. Okay. So in verse 13, pick it up from verse 13. Um, the Bible says, and then the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, along with Peter, so that even Barnabas, Barnabas, which was Paul's closest ministry partner was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I, Paul speaking, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And so we see that Peter has no problem mixing with the church of Antioch, a multicultural church, when his Jewish friends are not there. When his Jewish friends, Jewish Christians come from Jerusalem the Bible says that he was afraid. I wonder what he was afraid of. What, was it his reputation? What was it that he was afraid of? But, but he acts in a hypocritical way and he starts to separate himself. Paul immediately picks this up. He picks up the discrimination happening in the church. He picks up hundreds of years of systemic racism, which was in the church at that time. And he stands up for the Gentiles and he calls it hypocrisy. So who are you in the story? Are you the person that when we're in church, when we're in a multicultural church, we're worshiping together, we're eating together, we're hanging out together. But perhaps when we leave church, perhaps when you leave church and with you, with your family or with your friends or at school or at work, you separate yourself from different cultures? Are you the person who loves your neighbor at church but keeps quiet when different cultures are being ostracized or, you know, jokes, innuendos, you know the things, we know the things. Who are you? Are you the person that stands up for different cultures or the person that just keeps quiet? 
Are you the person that when discrimination is called out, you act defensively? Or are you the person that really listens and says, let's learn, let's learn from each other. Let me think about what I've just said or think about what I've just done. Are you the person like Paul that recognizes that God has called the church to be one? If we look at Galatians 3, which is the next chapter in 28, Paul continues his message that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Jesus Christ. He, he takes up that theme which goes back, right back to Genesis 1 verse 27, which says God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Pastor Simon speaks about that in session one of this series. So, you know, sometimes we are happy to be equal. Genesis 1, equal is fine, but equal and apart is fine. But when I look at the story of the Bible, God is in the better together space, not the equal but apart space. He is in the we are one space. It says in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. A colorful world, next destination. I was set on fire for Jesus in my teens, in my late teens, um, and it was through a mission trips that we did in the Eastern Cape, in the township specifically of the Eastern Cape. And we experienced incredible encounters with God. People were saved, healed, baptized um, in, in the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was incredible times. And those encounters really changed the trajectory of my life forever. It redefined my thinking of what does it even mean to live a successful life? And what is success? And what am I going to give my life and my heart to? And it was those encounters that as a late, as a, as a teenager, 19, 20 years old, changed the trajectory of my life forever. It also changed the trajectory of my life from a point of view that I met, I met Dorian, who's now my husband, and we are very happily married for 27 years. So it was really in church that I came to interact and get to know, got to know people of color. We were at a church called His People, which is now Every Nation, but it was at the inception of His People, Every Nation in Cape Town, where I met a whole bunch of young people, passionate about Jesus, wanting to just go and extend the gospel and the kingdom of God. We were from different backgrounds, different colors. We were ministering on the University of uh, the Western Cape, the University of Cape Town, the medical campus um, at Stellenbosch, and just really revival was breaking out. People were, young people were getting to know Jesus, coming to salvation. Lives were being transformed, changed. We were discipling people in the word, the presence, and the power of God. And this mission has not changed. A few years later, Dorian came up to Joburg and started the church at Witz. These people, Every Nation Witz. I followed a few months later. Same thing. People started to get to know Jesus. Lives were being changed. We were raising leaders. I mean, it was really exciting times. Our first worship leader was a woman by the name of Nawazi Mabindla. And um, she was studying law at that time. And in 2013, she became a judge in the Cape Town High Court. Nawazi led worship at my wedding, a wedding that my father was possibly not going to come to walk me down the aisle or pay for because we had made a decision to have a colorful wedding. Here are some things that I lament and that I missed as a white minister in those times, that we were leading from our culture. And even though we were in 
a multicultural environment, we didn't take enough time to do a deep dive into different cultures and really figure out, just even as the early church had to figure out, what, what did it really mean to be a multicultural church, not just in church, but when we stepped out of church, were we really listening to each other? Not seeing at that time how much white culture really dominated society and the global world. You know, doing things like singing songs in different languages, um, which, is a, which is a passion of mine, but doing it from a Western mindset and not creating enough tables for people to come and sit at and really talk, really, really talk about what it means to live in this country from different perspectives and different cultures. Here are some of the things that I celebrate. God used us really despite us and not because of us. We were young, passionate, and God will use, you know, an, an, a flawed individual and an imperfect vision to extend the gospel. Change was slow and messy, but God's grace was there and we were coming together and, and we were staying together. And then incredible leaders like Pastor Simon and Pastor Roger and Pastor Carol and later on Pastor Seviwe came and made a decision, as in Micah 6 verse 8, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly towards each other. Here are some of the things as a white woman that I know for sure, as Oprah would say, that there are many things that I don't know, that racism is in direct opposition to the gospel, that you know, there's bias in all of us and we need to address that bias and do the work that it takes to address that bias and that we are better together. Fourth, de fourth destination, a free world. Pastor Gillian says that our culture is the spice of humanity. How we dress, our food preferences, our music, this is not humanity itself, but it is the flavor we bring to humanity. And when I read my Bible, I do see freedom from bias and freedom from prejudice and freedom from hate and freedom from pain and freedom from sin and freedom from offense. But I see the road to freedom on the other side, going through challenge, going through offense, going through discomfort. But there is freedom and God offers freedom. So as we end, I'm not going to land the plane, right? Because we're in the air and we're still fixing the plane in the air. But I do want to share some components of what it takes to make that plane completely whole. The first one is confession, repentance, and forgiveness. If you need to forgive, forgive. How many times does the Bible say we need to forgive? 70 times 7. We basically need to keep forgiving and forgive and forgive because we were forgiven ultimately from the greatest sin. We need to repent. We need to confess. If you need to repent, repent. You know, in a marriage, you will know this is powerful. Those three words, I am sorry. Confess my sins. I am sorry. But I am sorry holds water when it is followed up with repentance. Repentance means I am sorry, but I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to change the trajectory of my life through action. We need to build more tables across cultures. We need to practice love. Paul tells us what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's not what Netflix tells us or what SABC tells us love is. He gives quite a 
great explanation and a detailed explanation of what love is. And 1 Corinthians 13 comes directly after, not before, after 1 Corinthians 12, uh, which is to the Church of Corinth. The Church of Corinth was messed up, man. They were, they were not in unity. They were suing each other. There was sexual immorality. In Afrikaans, we say gemors. There was a mess happening there. Paul comes in and he says, this is how you love people, that love is kind, Love is patient. Love is not proud. It's not rude. Love does not envy. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. How do you love one another? As I have loved you. He says, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And then the last component is hope. Don't lose hope. I see hope. When I see that Pastor Simon and Lindy can see that Dorian and I love them and respect them and honor their leadership. I experience hope when I can see that Pastor Simon and Lindy love us and respect us and can dream with us. I see hope when as a church we can have a land summit which is complex and messy and we don't have the answers to land in this country, but we choose to stay together and work out solutions together. And I see hope when my kids are growing up in a colorful world, a colorful home, a colorful church, and a colorful school. Racism is a curse. Don't wait for anyone to act. You go first. Thank you for joining us today and being part of Church Online with us. What a challenging word from Belinda today. A word that we will never forget. Freedom from racism. I love how Belinda shared her story and how it led to repentance, to forgiveness, and to rising up with hope and love for the future of South Africa and for the future of the generations to come. I want to encourage you to take time and reflect on this word. Whether you're black, white, Indian, colored, Take time to reflect on this word and ask the Lord, what is he saying to you with this word? And let us change.